You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught in school and on corporate media. Usually on Historically, we have people who come and talk about history. But today, we have somebody who made history. We're going to have Senator Mike Gravel. He was a senator from 1969 to 1981 and was instrumental in releasing the Pentagon Papers. Welcome, Senator Gravel. I'm yours. Go ahead and ask whatever questions you want. Okay, so can we start with the Pentagon Papers? What was going on in Vietnam and what exactly were the Pentagon Papers for people who weren't born or too young? <laughs> well, what the Pentagon Papers is, Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, had become disenchanted with the war. And before Lyndon Johnson appointed him to the World Bank, he had commissioned a study within the Defense Department as to how we got into the mess in Vietnam. After the study was complete and he read it, he classified it top secret and put it on the shelf. Unfortunately, if it was important for Robert McNamara to understand how we got into the mess of Vietnam, it was a thousand times more important for the people to have that knowledge. And so what had happened was that Daniel Ellsberg, who had been an analyst at RAND and uh, worked for Kissinger at one point, uh, he decided to release the Pentagon Papers and gave it to or tried to give it to several senators and House members, and nobody wanted to take it up. So he then turned to the New York Times, and after legal research, they decided to take the risk and publish it. And then at the same time, Ellsberg wanted to get somebody in Congress to do it. And he became aware of the fact that I was conducting a filibuster against the draft. So he called and asked if I would release the Pentagon Papers and uh, or read them as part of my filibuster. And I said yes. And subsequently, we made arrangements for me to get the papers. And I was not able to read them on the floor, but I was the chairman of a subcommittee on public works called buildings and grounds and so i called a i convened that committee uh, took testimony from a house member and then proceeded to read the papers into the record of the subcommittee and then then placed all the papers in that record and that's how the papers became available to the american public was via what i did with the speech and debate clause of the Constitution in releasing the papers. One thing I'm curious about, you said you tried to filibuster, but how was it obstructed? How did they stop you from filibustering it? No, I, I was filibustering, forcing the end of the draft. And so I started in May. Ellsberg got the papers to me uh, as part of my filibuster at the end of June. Mm -hmm. And then after the papers were out, I continued to filibuster to try and force an end to the draft. Now, the draft had expired at the end of June, but I continued to filibuster it so it wouldn't be taken up. But then an arrangement was made with the, the president, Richard Nixon, and John Stennis, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, uh, 
that if they would break my filibuster, they would guarantee and renew the draft for two years so that the president could save face and send us also. And then the agreement was they would renew the draft for two years, but at the end of two years, they would let it expire. And that's exactly what happened in 1973. The draft expired, but I generally characterize what I did as forcing the end of the draft. And so that's one of the accomplishments I feel very strong about. You should. (laughs) How did it change the course of where we were headed at Vietnam, like after people learned about what happened in the Pentagon Papers, like Lyndon Johnson lying and da-da-da? Well, what had happened... It's very difficult. uh, Ellsberg and I both feel that by releasing the secret documents, which showed that the government lied to the people, four different presidential administrations lied to the people. Once that was relieved, uh, it contributed to some degree to ending the war. And that was very meaningful. Uh, However, the secrecy that was part of that has continued. And so we find ourselves in the dilemma we are in today, and that is where the government is steeped in secrecy. The people don't really know what's going on with their government. And if the people don't know what's going on, they have no way of influencing their government. So that's where we are at today. Exactly. It seems like the intelligence community has no civilian oversight. And I heard you worked in classification when you were young. So how do they decide to classify documents as classified or unclassified? Well, I was the adjutant at the Communications Intelligence Service. And so as a bureaucrat, if they have the power to classify and they make a mistake, well, they immediately classify it so nobody else will see it. So that the classification process, by and large, is greatly abused. Now, there's no question in certain instances we need to have classification. But as I state, it's grossly abused. And my background in intelligence has demonstrated that to me repeatedly. So a few years later, when you were in the Senate, there was an inquiry into what exactly the CIA was up to with the church committee? Like, did it lead to any changes to how the U.S. intelligence apparatus works? Or, Yeah, it, it well, it exposed a lot of bad things that the intelligence community was doing. But uh, you've got to keep in mind that even after that, it went back to doing bad things where we had rendition programs, we were torturing. The CIA was deeply involved into that, and also the military. And so, though we've had the church committee to expose these things, these things came back in a vengeance. And uh, that's right today, with the level of cruelty we exhibit at our borders uh, over immigration is just appalling. I agree. I mean, especially after what we did in Honduras and El Salvador with all the death squads and stuff like that. Like, we destroyed their country. So we, I think, have a moral obligation for asylum seekers. 
Yes, we should. And the obligation, I think, would be better placed if we used our influence on those countries uh, who are essentially run by thugs. And so that's where we got to address the problem, that uh, that would staunch the rush to leave their countries. If their countries were habitable, they would stay. They would need to come to us. And then we could have a guest worker program where for the jobs that we need to be done, that we would permit immigrants to come in and do that and then return to their homes after the season. So the present view of immigration today is by the nativists who feel that they're well off what they want to do is keep the rest of the people off. So here, we're all from immigrants, but now a group of immigrants want to pull up the gangplank and not let anybody else come aboard. And that is that will spell disaster for the American people because immigration is what's made us strong and viable. And we need to continue with constant immigration to replenish the stock of people who can produce and carry the burden uh, for the elderly, which is ever-increasing. So can we go back to foreign policy? To me, it always seems like the U.S. like always intervenes if capital is ever threatened, so no place can actually have actual democracy. Like, How do we control the foreign policy to change it, to make it more humane? And why did it turn out this way? Well, first off, our ability to make it humane is very limited. And why did it turn out this way? Because we have a history of violence in the United States. Uh, We have a history of slavery, which has coarsened the, the human nature of Americans. And then, of course, we have the history of annihilating uh, essentially a genocide against the indigenous people of the continent. So that's where we're at right now. The ability to make change, it's the shortcoming of representative government. And the only way we're going to make changes is if we can turn around and have the people become lawmakers. Law is the center of democracy. Law is is how we govern ourselves, how we rule ourselves. So if we are going to participate in our own governance, we have to become lawmakers. I have legislation to create a legislature of the people that would amend the Constitution and then provide the deliberative tools to pass laws, to enact laws in a very deliberative fashion. Now, until we can empower the people to make laws, we won't be able to bring about any fundamental change and we'll suffer the embarrassment of the failure of representative government. Can you talk about your legislator of the people? Like, how would it work functionally? Well, it would work this way, that you and I would decide to say we're going to do away with any law. Let's say uh, you and I want to, to set up a process where the corporations cannot put money into people's campaigns. So we would get that drafted by the trust, the Citizens Trust that operates the procedures of the legislature and the people. And so they would draft that. After it's drafted to our satisfaction, we would then commission a poll 
And the, the criteria to continue the process is that 40% of the people in the poll have to agree that this issue, that we're proposed law that we have, is something that the people should vote on. And so after that takes place, then the processing begins. The trust opens up a website for each and every proposed law with the legislature and the people. And then the first thing that's done is there's a hearing held where the proponents, opponents, and uh, experts can testify as to the efficacy and the propriety of the legislation question. After the hearing, the trust convenes a pool of people to deliberate. could be 12 people, 15 people. that would deliberate on the details of our legislation, and they would be able to change it if it needed a change by a two-thirds vote. After that, then the hearing record, the deliberative committee, all these are reported on the website that we set up for the legislation. After that, the legislation is scheduled, is sent to the legislative body in question. If it's a national issue, it goes to Congress. If it's a state of Colorado issue, it goes to the state of Colorado. And the members of that legislature, national or local or state, then have to vote in an advisory capacity. The vote doesn't count, except that they're required to vote up and down in public uh, so that we can realize, so we can get an idea of what their counsel would be in this regard. At the same time as the legislation is sent to the relative legislative body, it is scheduled for a vote. And so the legislature has 90 days to perform the advisory vote. And then it goes back to the trust, and the trust sets up the election. And the election would be one week long, 24 hours a day, and using the newest technology. And so the people, the voters, who are, of course, all registered for life, would then have an opportunity to vote on the legislation with the newest technology from anywhere in the world. And at the end of that week, if the whatever the turnout is and the majority of that turnout is the affirmative, then that proposed law becomes the law of the land. That's the process that is laid out in detail in this legislation that I have called the Legislature of the People and the Citizens Legislative Procedures Act. That sounds actually fantastic. It sounds like the Citizens Assembly in Venezuela. I think it's a great idea. First off, I'm not familiar with the citizens in Venezuela. The detail that's necessary for this to work is really awesome. And so I would guess that in Venezuela uh, that it's pretty general. And, of course, that's the problem. And we have the example of Brexit. So they just had a referendum of the people. People didn't deliberate. They just voted based upon their emotional reaction. And that's not a way to make law. And so no. the I've never I've not seen any proposal anywhere in the world that would deal with proper lawmaking the way I've outlined in this legislation. I agree and like I said, I think it's a good way to take power away from the concentrated few, because it's a lot easier to bribe 435 Congress people than 300 million people. <laughs> That's very correct. That's very correct. Brandon, you have a question? 
Yeah, I was wanting to circle back to the Pentagon Papers for a moment. I think uh, a lot of people, I, I, the, the term is sort of out there, I, I think, in the kind of public consciousness. But what they are, I think, is a lot fuzzier. I think most people don't really know what was so explosive about them, what they revealed, and why it was such a scandal for the Nixon administration and for the United States government and our foreign policy apparatus. Yeah, and of course, the administration of Harry Truman, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, Jack Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, you know, they, and of course, uh, Richard Nixon. So all of these administrations at one point or another lied to the American people as to the nature of our involvement. They also obscured the reason that we were there, right? For example, they didn't tell the public that one of the reasons that we were in Vietnam was because we wanted to contain China. That was an element that, that, well, it was the whole domino theory that was expressed by Eisenhower, and it was erroneous, because uh, when the war ended, the whole area didn't go communist. The only part that went communist were already communist. So it was a fallacious argument, and uh, and of course, it was a, a war that was fought over the wrong issues. We were wrapped up in this whole Cold War, and this was one of the elements of And there was no need to pursue that at that time. But that's the culpability of these presidential administrations. Also, I heard that before Richard Nixon opened up trade with China, you sponsored the legislation to open trade and also negotiate as a mediator between China and Taiwan? Even before Nixon sent Kissinger to China, that you were basically way ahead of them. You'd already sponsored legislation to provide for the reconciliation. Yeah. And I did. I couldn't even get a co-sponsor. I couldn't get a co-sponsor in the Senate. Wow. <laughs> so that'll give you... Yeah. Well, you know, they viewed me as a maverick. I was crazy to be, but it was just reasonable. And I had introduced this legislation several months before Kissinger secretly went to China to set up the meeting for Richard Nixon. But of course, the trade aspect of this that didn't take place for quite a number of years. And now what we see is is China, which is now competing against us in the world, they're concentrating on economic development. We're concentrating on arming people throughout the world. So it was a so it, it was a toxic issue at the time that you proposed the legislation. Like even for Democrats, it was too radioactive for them to want to touch. Wow, that's right. No, it was toxic. You gotta believe it. <laughs> wow. Also. When you were in the Senate, the Watergate scandal broke out. How did other senators react when it first broke out? And can I just have some of your insights on that? Well, I was obviously a victim partially of that, which, of course, the the reason what Nixon, as a result of my releasing the Pentagon Papers and publishing them with Beacon Press, pursued me and my staff person and Beacon Press with a grand jury in Boston. The case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that any member of Congress 
uh, under the speech and debate could release information of a classified nature based upon their view that the American people should be aware of this. However, that was only within the confines of the Congress. If you went beyond the Congress, as I did, to publish the entirety of the papers, then that was a different story. And so I was subject to, to indictment. It didn't happen because uh, Nixon was on his way to getting reelected. And also the beginnings of Watergate were just rearing its head. And so he just left us alone. Uh, it was interesting, a vignette of history is that the three members of the Justice Department that tried to indict Dan Ellsberg and myself, we never served a day in jail, and all three of those people went to jail. <laughs> what was their involvement in the Watergate scandal? The people that went to jail was part yeah. of the cover-up. was part of the cover-up that, that the uh, President was trying to bring about. He got more people involved. People like Howard Dean, uh, uh, who who just were entrapped by the nature of the crimes that were being committed. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter. And Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters, and that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. It seems like Barry Goldwater and other Republicans were with Nixon for a while, but then they decided he was too toxic. Like, how did that Evolution no, that, happened. no, it didn't. It didn't work that way. Uh, Richard Nixon was toxic, and the issue was the tapes that Richard Nixon had that he'd been taping his uh, people who were in his office. And so the Supreme Court ruled that he had to release the tapes. He was going to not release them, but uh, Goldwater and, and Senator Scott went to see uh, Nixon and said to look at. Uh, and Nixon was already under a cloud of impeachment. And so they told Nixon that, look, you're going to lose the impeachment vote in the Senate. And so Nixon, as a result of that, decided to resign. Keep in mind, Goldwater, Bob Dole, and others, to the end, wanted to continue the Vietnam War. And to the end, supported uh, Nixon, even after... Nixon was classified as the not uh, unindicted co-conspirator by Judge Sirica. They just wanted him to step down once they thought that he'd become a liability or that he was going to make it harder for them to continue prosecuting the war. No, no, I think it was just the fact that the Supreme Court had ruled that he had to release the tapes. He was not going to, and they just told him that he had to release the tapes or he would be impeached. So what he did is he resigned. He was hoping to keep some of the tapes uh, secret so that people wouldn't know the full extent of his altercations. But it slowly over time, all the tapes were released. For me, what listening to tapes is seeing the complete 
inhumane nature of Henry Kissinger and him with regards to Cambodia and the bombing campaign? Like, how did you feel about it when you listened to it? Well, first off, I had introduced legislation in November. Uh, the the bombing started on uh, Christmas under uh, Nixon. And so I had introduced legislation to limit the president's ability to bomb uh, foreign countries. And it didn't pass the Senate. Uh, and so Christmas came along and Richard Nixon went crazy and was bombing everybody. And so when they reconvened, Ted Kennedy and Ed Muskie and others came to me and said, look at Gravel, we were getting a lot of heat from the peace community. Why don't you put up your amendment again and we'll vote for it and get ourselves covered for the peace community. So it, it, was, it was a lot of irony at the time. Yeah, and now it seems like the president can bomb whatever country he wants with the AUMF. Like, we really need to bring back the congressional authority to declare a war instead of President, I don't know, doing whatever he wants. Don't you agree? No, that's, I think that's just wishful thinking for the Congress. The Congress has been derelict in exercising his power. That's how the power of the executive has grown so much. No, it's, it's a basic failure of representative government. And the only way to change that is to empower the people to be able to make laws in the legislature of the people. And then you'd have a parallel process where people would make laws and the, and the government would make laws. But the way it is right now is that the representative government, the representatives have a monopoly on lawmaking. And that's what has to change. If we're going to govern ourselves properly, we have to do it by the people involved in the process of making laws. That's simple from my point of view. I think a lot of people sort of, uh, I think there's probably a vague understanding in the public now that at the very least that our intelligence agencies are, well, that they're secretive and that they're, and that they're doing a lot of stuff that even other parts of the government may not know about. But I, I'm not sure how widely known it is just how much of a black box the CIA and the NSA, et cetera, are. Especially, like, given that there are mechanisms for oversight, I mean, you know, at least supposedly, could you talk a little bit about this, how specifically those fail and how they kind of actually end up abetting the secrecy? Let me put it another way, and, and I hope this will shock you, is right today, the Congress is, has appropriated and the Pentagon is in a process of refurbishing our entire nuclear capability. That means our submarines, our airplanes, our silos. And so they're spending about $1.7 trillion. Now, if you consider the cost overruns, we're talking about the government's going to be spending in the next decade about uh, 2 to $3 trillion. When you heard it, trillion dollars. That's what they're spending right now to refurbish our nuclear capability. Now, if you reason the situation out logically, you recognize that if anybody were to do a salvo of or go ahead and perpetuate sending out nuclear devices, let's say uh, somebody assaulted us with their nukes. Well, what would happen is that uh, they would, these nukes would trigger a nuclear winter. And so that within 
several years would destroy the planet. So now we have a situation that we're spending trillions of dollars on a weapon that can't be used. Otherwise, it's insanity. We destroy the planet. So think of the logic of representative government and the people in the executive and judiciary, that their logic is real simple. We're going to turn around and build three or four trillion dollars worth of nuclear devices. We can't use them because it would be suicide to the planet. Think about that a little bit. And you recognize that there's really something really very, very wrong in our present process of governance. And that's why I keep advocating that we have to bring the people in to the process as lawmakers. Hell, they can't do any worse than the minority is doing right now. Absolutely. I mean, they claim, oh, we can't afford the Green New Deal, but we can afford to wipe out all life on Earth. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and and so when you look at the $3 trillion, dollars, you can have a Green New Deal, easy as pie. And that the Republicans were trying to ridicule the Green New Deal just shows the level of stupidity and crassness. Because there's two things that will destroy our planet. One is a nuclear uh, holocaust kind of a deal. And the other is climate change. Both of them are going to destroy. One's going to destroy it over a long period of time. And one's going to do it short, quickly. But the stupidity of continuing or ridiculing the need of a Green New Deal, which is vital for the planet's survival, it's unbelievable. First, it's the crazies on the Republican side, and then it's the, the supine leadership uh, on the Democratic side. I'm glad you actually bring up the supine leadership or lack thereof on the Democratic side. Like, what happened in 68 and 72 or whatever, like, that caused such a damage to the Democratic psyche? Like, Well, we've had this damage since the Second World War. And even before that, this goes back to the founding of the country with creating the Constitution, which was embedded with slavery, and then having a national policy of annihilation of the Indians. Right. Ours was an extremely bourgeois revolution. It's a bunch of rich guys. It wasn't a, wasn't a revolution from below. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And of course, they set up the structure of government so that it perpetuates their power uh, ever after. And that's what we're facing right now. Why, why representative government is a failure today is because it was structured to be a failure. That makes sense. And... When you were in the Senate, now that we're speaking of the environment, you were on the Public Works Committee, which helped set up the EPA, right? Yes. Well, in fact, the decade of the 70s was the most prolific decade in trying to protect the environment. It has since eroded to the point where you now have it. It's a joke of itself based upon what Trump is doing. My understanding was that when Nixon signed off on the EPA, it was basically as a compromise or like a hedging measure because he felt like pressure was so great that he didn't want the government to end up going a more radical route. What was the more radical approach that was on the table or that would have been preferred by you and other left-leaning legislators? Yeah, I don't read it that way. Nixon did some really interesting things. He did a great deal for the environment. 
And I credit him in being sincere in that regard. Like his going to China. I credit him with that was very prescient. And so the problem is he had such a personal bad streak, sort of an evil streak, that he would do anything to maintain his political power. But here, too, even on his worst days, he did a few good things. It seems like he was a really kind of weird mix of, I don't know, like extreme sort of personal pettiness and petulance and a desire to kind of be this some sort of world historic figure that had leave some lasting mark on the world or some sort of legacy. Yeah, I think that's an accurate depiction. I guess what I was talking about with the Democratic Party was like them turning their back on the labor movement and embracing neoliberalism. And even today, they're like, oh, Bernie Sanders isn't electable because whatever happened in with McGovern in 19, whatever. Like, that's what I was trying to get at, I guess. Do you have a comment well, on the, that? The, tur- the turning point of it all was Bill Clinton, because what he did is he took us from a central position and moved the country to the right with his approach to welfare and Glass-Steagall. You know, essentially, it was he that teed up the 08 recession that we suffered. And he came out of the DLC, right, which had been founded in, that was founded in, what, the early 80s, I think, by him and Al Gore and Gary Hart and some others? Yeah, that's right. And it took the entire party and moved them to the right. And what we should do is realize that that right now when people are saying, well, I'm a centrist Democrat, well, he's not a centrist. That person is to the right of center because everything's been moved over. What we need to do now is push it back to the center so that the left of center can realize its agenda. This is why I admire and support Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who I hope will eventually be the next Speaker of the House after Pelosi. And I think that her leadership and her brain power is just awesome in that regard. I'm also very fond of the skills that Tulsi Gabbard exhibits. She's the only one, well, I think Warren has come along, but she's the only one that really has put forth the the approach to rein in the military-industrial complex. How would you do that, at a, I, I guess, at, a, at an institutional level? I mean, I, I'm a socialist, so ultimately I think, you know, bourgeois democracy is the dead end, and there's only, there's only so much reform as possible. But in the short term, if we get, a, say, Bernie Sanders for president or somebody, I'm, I hope they'll do everything they can to try to uh, impede the war machine. What would you do in the short term? How do you begin to tackle that? Well, you can't. I don't think there's anybody that could get elected or, or the next, whoever the next president is, uh, whether it's Trump or a Democrat, you won't be able to deal with it. The problem is generic. The problem is the structure of our government. And since law, the law is the heart of democracy, the law is the heart of civilization, we live under the law. So if we want to have an impact, on public policy. It's not by the continued monopoly of the law by representative government. It's to share that power with all the people. But in doing that, you have to enact that into being, and that takes a constitutional amendment. And I've drafted that, and I've I've outlined the procedures, how you get it enacted uh, and ratified. 
and then a parallel legislation that in great detail, as I just went through earlier, sets up the procedures for people to make laws. And so that's the answer. You can, we can fight all we want or try all we want, but the flaw of representative government was enacted at the very beginning. It was enacted in the Constitution. And so you can try all you want. The elites are empowered by the nature of our Constitution and the nature of representative government. And so if you can accept that, that you can't make those changes that you want, and all you'll do is you'll nip at the margins uh, with uh, successful legislation here and there. But it's only at the margins. The answer is to empower all the people to be able to make laws. This is not rocket science. This is just thoughtful analysis as to what it would take to bring about fundamental change. I, I completely agree. If we wait for whatever crumbs our government is going to throw our way, we'll all be dead from climate change or, you know, boiling oceans by the time they get around to giving us anything good. Or a nuclear exchange. Yeah, absolutely. I have a book coming out this summer, and it's called Human Governance, The Failure of Representative Government and a Solution to the People. And that will be out in the middle of the summer. It'll be a short book. It won't be any longer than 80 pages, and it'll be modestly priced so that it'll be available and you could be able to read it in one setting. It has all the details of how you get the amendment enacted by the people. It has nothing to do with the government. And then it has the Legislative Procedures Act in great detail that it shows you how the people would be able to legislate in a deliberative fashion. And so you'll lay out all that in a book, the potential. So if you get a chance, buy the book when it comes out in mid, and then you'll have the tools in your hand to bring this about whether I'm alive or not. How many donations have you had? Because you need 65,000, right? How, how many donations are you short of getting we've, into I think bank? we've got 15,000 donors so far, and I think it's about $50,000. So there's enough money for our supporters to be able to wage a, a campaign to get all the signatures. I do know that Tulsi Gabbard is going to recommend that her supporters vote and contribute to, to us to get us in the, in the debates. And I recommend every listener to do the same. Absolutely. Support Tulsi and support me. <laughs> okay. What's the URL? It's MikeGravel.org? Correct. Okay. So, yeah, everyone, please go donate one, five, whatever you can, because it would be really amazing to have somebody to lay the fundamental problems with the military industrial complex and our forever wars and our Orwellian press. One last thing. Yesterday, they arrested Julian Assange. Do you have any thoughts or comments about that? Yeah, I think it's criminal on the part of government, what they're doing to Assange, to Chelsea Manning, and to Snowden. I mean, these people have put their lives on a line in order to inform the American people over the shortcomings of government. Uh, we should be striking medals, of freedom medals, and giving it to Assange and Chelsea and also Snowden. 
So I feel very deeply about that. And, uh, and I just, it's just terrible what they're doing to Assange and to Chelsea. She's still in jail. The judge kept her in jail because she won't testify against Assange. This is a sick situation. Especially seeing like Dick Cheney and George Bush being lauded by the press as these new heroes. And it's like, they're the war criminals who need to be in jail. <laughs> That's right. And they should be prosecuted. And I hope that someday they will before they die. I hope so, too. <laughs> Real quick, I quite, something I was wondering about, just curious about your opinion on this, Senator. I, I can't imagine anything really like damning or enlightening or significant that Chelsea could reveal in testimony about Assange. This seems like just revenge to me. Like they're just wanting to get her another way. Just to use her as an example, since Obama commuted the rest of her sentence. Well, she may have something to shed lights on, but I think what she's doing is whether her testimony would be relevant or not, she just does not want to discuss it. And I think the judge is wrong incarcerating her. She's suffered enough, and she's just a wonderful human being. And I would hope that this trial would end, and I would hope that Julian will not be extradited. Because there's a legal process that's got to take place in Britain, and he may prevail in that process. Who knows? But he's going to, but they're going to incarcerate him, obviously, since he jumped bail. It's a very sad situation for the communications media. But that's the best I can pontificate on that problem. And the corporate media won't care because they don't see Assange as being anything like them. And he's not. Well, not at all. The corporate media is lock, stock, and barrel owned by the military-industrial complex and Wall Street. And so Julian Assange and Snowden and Manning are a fundamental threat to that element of secrecy in government. Absolutely. For me, another problem is the long arm of the American law. Like, how does the American law apply to a man who's never set foot in America to an Australian citizen. So it seems like it's not very good for the government to have such a long arm. Well, the only way you're going to control that is if the people become lawmakers. So I think I've made my case in that regard. Thank you so much. It was quite an honor. And I hope you have a great weekend. Okay, thank you very much, and I hope for you, too. Thanks so much. Good night. Good night. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show. <laughs>